Hello and welcome to Fertility Springboard, the podcast series brought to you by Fertility Help Hub. I'm Eloise, founder of Fertility Help Hub, and over the series I will be bringing you conversations with some of the most influential and inspiring professionals and experts around the world to arm you with useful and empowering thoughts and resources to ease your fertility journey. And don't forget to sign up to the newsletter to make sure you don't miss out on anything. It's packed full of inspiring interviews, resources, discounts and offers, competitions and real life stories. Hello and welcome to my guest today who is Kristen, an embryologist from Perth, Australia and you can find her using the handle at I like my eggs fertilized. Welcome Kristen. Hello, thank you for having me. Very nice to be speaking to you today and we're going to talk all about the common questions that you get asked as an embryologist, um, what people want to know and really dig deep in terms of um, helping people understand more about what to expect and what things mean when they're about to embark on an IVF cycle or perhaps they've had a fail um, and unsuccessful round and they want some more answers. So the first thing I wanted to ask you was just to find a bit more about um, how you became an embryologist. Yeah, so um, in order to become an embryologist, you do need to have a science degree. I'm not sure if different countries have different um, different requirements for what you need but um, I do have a degree in biomedical science that was my undergrad and I do have a master's in reproductive medicine so I don't think it's compulsory to have a postgraduate qualification however I would assume that for those looking into the IVF field to get a job in the IVF field you are going to find it quite difficult to find a job unless you do have that postgraduate qualification. Um, And there might be some as well around that have PhDs, but um, I've got a master's and I think a lot of the girls that I work with will either have honours or master's as well. Mm -hmm. Great. And did you train in Australia? Yes, I did, yes. So before we talk about IVF, um, there'll be lots of people who aren't at that stage and this may not be the treatment that their doctor recommends or they may still be trying naturally. Um, What are your thoughts on other methods of conception before you get to IVF stage or IUI, for example? Yeah, yep. So there's, yeah, there's definitely other things you can try. So um, that would be your hormonal tracking. So going to the clinic and getting your bloods done and they will tell you when you're, when you're about to ovulate. Uh, you can do that either with ovulation induction or not. Um, and that is, so that's actually what I did myself. I suffer from PCOS. Um, I've got high LH levels. I've got high AMH. I've got very long cycles. And um, I did some tracking on my own for a little while and found that I just wasn't and ovulating and then so when I actually went to the clinic and was having the proper tracking done they um, with ovulation induction they were able to tell me when I was ovulating um, and I did get pregnant that way um, so you can do that with other timed intercourse so they just tell you when to have intercourse if you've got a male partner that's not working away um, or you can do IUI which is um, intrauterine insemination so if your husband is working away or if you're a single woman using donor sperm or if you're in the same sex relationship using donor sperm then um, you would come into the clinic they would wash that sperm and insert it into you with a catheter um, but and then so leading up to that you would be going to the clinic having your um, not daily bloods but every few day bloods and as you get closer 
the as you get closer to ovulation, they might give you an ultrasound to see how many follicles are there or to see if ovulation's close. And um, you may or may not need um, a trigger injection. You may not may or may not um, need the ovulation induction drugs. That's just up to the doctor and up to your particular circumstances. Um, so yeah, definitely you might want to try your ovulation induction or intrauterine insemination before going on to IVF. And that's just depending on your fertility cause. If you have your semen analysis done, if your, your partner has just his semen analysis done and the sperm count is very, very low, then you would bypass all of those and go straight to ICSI. And, um, or if not, if the sperm's good, then you might not want to spend the money on IVF or ICSI yet and try some inseminations or just try timed intercourse. So that's just completely up to you and your doctor um, what steps you want to take there. Because I've spoken to many specialists who said that they're, you know, people always think, well, IVF is going to be more successful because that's that's the big thing, isn't it? Um, yes. And some of these specialists have said, you know, sometimes taking a step back and looking at other methods might be more successful in a kind of natural, a more natural way than jumping straight to that. As in, going back a step doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be less successful. Yes, yeah. And the doctor will have to take into account your cause of fertility and your age as well. For the older patients, they're probably going to be more inclined to go straight to the IVF. Um, but for the younger patients, they probably will be more inclined to, to start off with some um, tracking ovulation induction or inseminations first. Yeah, that's a great point. Great point. Thank you. Um, so can you tell us a bit more about IVF? What is involved for people who are listening, who are thinking that this is going to be their next step, probably feeling like I was um, rather overwhelmed and a sense of dis not disappointed, but sad that it's come to this. But at the same time, if I if this is the right word, excited that the help is finally happening um, and feeling like this is the closest that you're getting to a pregnancy or to um, hopefully bringing home a, a child. Yeah, yeah, so I can definitely understand that would be, yeah, quite a, quite a daunting experience to be, to come to that conclusion that you do have to start IVF because it is a very confusing thing for those people that have never really looked into it before. So essentially what will happen before you can even start IVF is your doctor will need to go through multiple investigations with you to determine your cause of infertility, um, so for both partners. And um, if you do have to go ahead with IVF, you will have to start um, ovarian stimulation with different drugs. So different doctors will have different drugs, different protocols. There's many, many different ways they can do that. And you will be monitored quite closely. So what people don't realise at the start is that there's a lot of blood tests involved um, and lots of ultrasound monitoring involved as well. And I think certain countries, they may not do as many blood tests because the blood tests are quite expensive. They're more focused on ultrasound monitoring but you will be at your clinic quite frequently being monitored. And as your ovaries stimulate and as you're responding to the medication, you're going to get more follicles, um, more follicles and your estrogen is going to go up and your doctor's then going to decide when you're going to have your trigger injection. And about 36 hours later, you will come in after your trigger injection to have what is called the egg collection procedure. So in the egg collection procedure, you will get lightly sedated and the doctor will insert a, an ultrasound probe, just as when you have your internal ultrasounds for your follicle monitoring, and they will draw out the follicular fluid and then that then comes to us embryologists. And we will sift through those, um, those little petri dishes of follicular fluid to find those eggs and put those eggs aside 
to be um, later, later in the day, a few hours later, they'll get in inseminated with either IVF or ICSI. Um, after the next day, we'll know what has fertilised and that then starts the embryo culture process. And a few days later, you'll be able to come in for your, if you're having a fresh transfer, have your embryo transfer. Otherwise, they might get frozen for a later cycle. And um, then you'll find out a couple of weeks later whether or not you were pregnant or not. And um, just going back a few steps to when the eggs are retrieved, um, as an embryologist um, and you're looking in the Petri dish, is it really obvious to you straight away um, what looks like it's going to be successful and what looks like it may not develop as well? Not necessarily, because when we are collecting the eggs, they are still surrounded by their fluffy cumulus cells. I always refer to them as little clouds and um, or little cotton balls. And um, sometimes you can tell that the, the cumulus cells are quite dark or that the egg in the inside is quite dark or quite small, but it doesn't always necessarily correlate to whether the egg is mature or not. It will be later on in the day when we strip the eggs for ICSI or the following day when we look at the IVF ones, um, that is when we can actually tell whether the egg is mature or not and um, do you find that uh, people who had who retrieve lots of eggs um, that doesn't necessarily determine how many mature eggs they're going to end up with yeah, so it is common that, um, not always, not always, but sometimes when a patient does get a lot of eggs, sometimes they do get a lot of immature eggs or they're not as good quality. That's not always the case. I have definitely seen cases where they're all quite nice, um, but it's not uncommon that to see them poorer quality or more immature in the larger egg numbers. Mm -hmm. And obviously there's so much conversation, isn't there, around people holding out hope to reach blastocyst stage. What are your feelings on that? Yeah, so some clinics will only do blastocyst and I've heard that some clinics only do day three. I like to, um, I think it's good to do it on a case-by-case -case basis because there's pros and cons to both and some people are never going to get embryos that are good enough to make it to day five, but they can actually get pregnant with day threes going back into their, you know, the embryos getting back into the natural environment of the uterus earlier rather than being in an artificial environment and they tend to do better. So um, when you've only got a small number of embryos to choose from, if you've only got, you know, two or three good embryos to choose from, there's really no advantage of taking it to day five because on day three, out of those few, you're going to know which ones are the best ones for transfer. So you might as well get them back in their natural environment. Whereas if you've got a lot to choose from, then absolutely, yep, I'd take them to day five and see which ones are able to make it to a blastocyst. And um, you'll have a better choice of... Um, you know, sometimes if you've got quite a lot to choose from on day three, you'll only have a couple of good ones to choose from on day five. And it's quite obvious which ones are the better ones because you can grade their inner cell mass and you can grade their trifectoderm cells. So you can quite clearly see, generally speaking, you can quite clearly see what is a really good embryo when it's a blastocyst. And um, sorry, I jumped forward a bit. Would you mind explaining to people who might be new to the process or just, just looking at their options um, and trying to understand IVF or ICSI, um, the difference between IVF and ICSI and also what a blastocyst is versus a day three embryo? Yeah, yeah. So with the IVF, so the IVF and ICSI is that's just the way that we're inseminating the eggs. So your IVF cycle is still going to be completely the same. The only difference is when, how we inseminate the eggs. So after your egg collection, four to six hours later, if we were doing IVF, the sperm sample gets washed and so that the sperm are separated from the semen.
and we put a measured concentration of those sperm into the dish with the eggs and those sperm are left to get in on their own. So we're not manipulating the eggs, they just get left to get in on their own. So we would choose to do this if it's their first cycle, if there's good sperm, if we know that they've had a pregnancy together in the past, there's been no fertilisation issues um, and we like to do as less manipulation as we can. Now, if we know that they have had a cycle before, we know that there's poor quality sperm or they've had poor fertilisation before, um, we will can do ICSI. The doctor will tell us to do ICSI and that is where we will strip the eggs to see which ones are mature. So the mature eggs will have a little polar body and those eggs we will take a sperm, well, we can select a sperm, select the best sperm that we can and inject that into the egg. So um, there's statistically there's no difference difference between IVF embryos and ICSI embryos are very, very similar. And when you say you can select the sperm, would you know at that stage whether it's a male sperm or female? No, we can't. So I have heard that there are labs around the world that do sperm sorting. Um, so they have different mechanisms that they can do that. I'm not sure how they do that. It's not 100% effective. It was like, I think when I looked at it, it was like 92% effective. Um, so that was sperm sorting. But no, when we look at it in the lab, no matter how high we uh, magnify that sperm, we can't see whether it's an X chromosome or a Y chromosome. We can, it, they, they all look the same to us. Uh-huh. And um, for me personally have um my husband and i needed to have ICSI because we use donor sperm which was frozen so what's the reason yes. why it, ha- it has to be ICSI with a frozen um sample yeah so that just depends how many are in the so what the post thought is so some clinics regardless of the quality if it's frozen they'll do ICSI um but some clinics won't so we can still do IVF or IUR on frozen sperm where I am and it just depends on what the quality is of the sperm that uh, survive so when we do the freeze we will take out a little bit and thaw it out and see how it survives Sometimes you will get a lot of sperm that survive and that's great. We can are more flexible with how we can use that. But a lot of the time, a lot of sperm die off in the freezing process. So not many will survive and you will have to do ICSI. Okay. And am I, am I right in thinking you would roughly use like one straw or one vial of sperm per IVF round? If it's ICSI, yeah. So if it's a straw, if it's a straw and we're doing ICSI, then generally speaking, one straw is enough depending on what the post-thaw count is. However, if we're wanting to do an insemination or an IVF, we would generally need to take out a few straws. Ah, okay. That's interesting to know. Um, and what about genetic testing? Um, I've talked about this quite a lot on Fertility Help Hub with specialists before, and it would be really interesting to get your thoughts on it as an embryologist and how it works. Mm-hmm and how it can help with success and how it can also potentially harm embryos by looking into them. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not a genetic scientist, so I can't go into it too much, but I can definitely give you the basics. So for particular groups of people, they may need to have their embryos tested. So you would be looking at the groups of people that have had multiple Um, multiple embryos transferred and had implantation failure or they've suffered multiple miscarriages or they are carriers of genetic disease. I have heard that some clinics in the US, they pretty much give everybody, they do genetic testing on everybody. Um, So I guess that's just up to the doctor whether he thinks that is required or not. Um, Definitely for the groups of people that have had multiple miscarriages or implantation failure, there are definite benefits there because it is bleeding out the embryos that 
we don't need to transfer because mm-hmm. you can have a beautiful, beautiful embryo and think, yep, that's the next one that we're going to transfer. That's the one they're going to have for their frozen for their frozen cycle next month and then find out that that's actually genetically abnormal. Mm-hmm. So there is definite benefits to that. However, you do have the risk of, there is a risk of damage to the embryo that is small, but there is risk of damage. Those embryos that are getting tested, they're getting frozen and thawed a bit more. So you are manipulating them a bit more, putting a bit more risk there. And there's also the risk that um, with mosaic embryos, I think the risk is a lot less now because there's newer testing, newer testing um, ways that they're doing it. But generally you're only testing a few cells of the embryo and some embryos will have some cells that are abnormal and some cells that are normal. So those are the mosaic ones. And there is the risk there of an embryo showing up as mosaic when most of it is normal. And you can also get the ones where the embryo is tested as normal, but really there's portions of it that are abnormal. So there's definitely pros to it. And um, patients will need to discuss with their specialist whether the specialist thinks that that is warranted or not. Cool. Thank you for that advice. Um, the other thing that I can't get my head around, and be, when I was in this vision, I still couldn't really understand the statistics around it. But you, you think, don't you, if you're going to transfer two embryos that are both blastocysts, you have a higher chance of pregnancy. Is that correct? Or is it just that you have a higher chance of twins? Yeah, so from what I understand is you have a high chance of twins. So, and that, yeah, that really blew my mind as well when I was reading up on that because, yeah, absolutely, I thought just everybody should be having double transfers and, you know, double their their chance, but it's not like that. A lot of patients do ask, can I just have two put in and double my chances? And it's not like that at all. Um, So, yeah, the reason for that is that there's so many factors that are affecting your success in an embryo transfer cycle, like your endometrium, your hormones. There's so many factors that, you know, if there is a certain factor that is preventing you from getting pregnant that month, you would don't want to sacrifice two embryos when you can sacrifice one. Um, And there's there's lots of pros and cons that um, patients will need to discuss with their doctor. But, yeah, you're definitely not dramatically increasing your chances by putting in multiple embryos. It's fascinating, isn't it? Like understanding how you pick the embryos because one of my rounds was unsuccessful. One round, um, two blastocysts was put back um, frozen on a natural frozen cycle and resulted in a pregnancy of my daughter, one child. And then um, another round, um, two were put back, two blastocysts were put back fresh and resulted in twins. So it's so hard when you've been given this card and you're looking at this embryo to especially in the two-week wait to get your head around whether and you're looking at two next to each other one might be bigger one has a bigger inner cell mass or or whatever you call it Um, and you're starting to think imagine in your head well which one's going to work if one works and it's just complete mind it's just so hard to stop analyzing it before you know the result yeah 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 definitely and they all look so different as well like even if they've got the same similar grading they can look so different as well or one can be much bigger than the other one um and yeah i've seen that i look at people's embryo photos all the time or people send me photos and yeah it's it's quite um yeah quite interesting to see how different they are and which ones are successful and which ones aren't 
So looking at an embryo card photo, you wouldn't be able to say, oh, that one has a better chance than that one. It, I mean, it's hard to tell from a photo, but sometimes you can see in a photo that they've got like a really nice big inner cell mass. Uh -huh. um, and every time I see a really nice big inner cell mass, I think, oh, that's really nice. And sometimes you can see the trifectoderm, there's lots of multiple layers and they're nice and bubbly and the, the cells look nice and plump. So you can, yeah, you can tell whether it's good, a, you know, one's a little bit better quality than the other one. Um, but just because one is a bit better quality than the other one doesn't necessarily mean that that's genetically normal over the other one as well, uh, because only a certain percentage of your embryos are going to be genetically normal. So, um, and it, it's hard to tell that just from, you, you can't tell, you can't tell the genetics just by looking at a photo. So regarding grading, um, how does that work? Because as a patient, it's so easy to get hung up on grades um, and to think yes. that was an A, whatever, whatever, therefore it should have resulted in success. So what does grading mean? Yeah, so, I mean, different clinics will have different grading systems, so I don't have to tell you specific gradings, but what we're looking at, so in a day three embryo, a day three embryo is a cellular embryo, so we can still count the cells. So we're looking at how even those cells are, how, no, how nice those cells look. Um, we're looking at the cell number, if they're in the right cell, cell number range, and the amount of fragmentation. So fragmentation is when the cells divide and little bits break off. A little bit of fragmentation is perfectly fine, but a lot of fragmentation we don't want to see. And then with a day five, so a day five is when you get to the blastocyst stage and that's when you've got your inner cell mass, which is your big ball in the middle and then all your trifectoderm cells around the outside. So we're looking for nice, tightly packed cells. We like, we like to see a nice big inner cell mass with tightly packed cells and we nice, like to see nice, plump and juicy trifectoderm cells. So in terms of grading, I have seen patients use up all their lovely AAs and all their lovely grade ones and not get pregnant and then they come back and use their BB or their grade twos and get pregnant with those. Yeah, I always say don't get hung up on the grading because the grading doesn't tell us about the genetics of the embryo and it doesn't tell us if it's going to implant or not. Um, it's, it's really your chance of pregnancy is what it is and it doesn't matter whether it's a grade A or a grade B or a grade two. It, you know, it, your chance of pregnancy is not going to change whether I tell you yours is a grade A or a grade B. Um, so, yeah, I don't like patients to get too hung up on the grading because I have seen very, very average or even poor embryos create pregnancies. That's really useful to know because it can be really hard in the two-week two week wait cycle to look back and think, you know, why did this happen or why, why yeah. is it like this when it's such a good grade? Um, yes. Would think and I've had well that they quite they get upset that they don't have grade ones on day three so day three is when we would give them like a one two or three grade um and people will say oh why are they not grade one and the reality is you don't really see grade ones it's very very normal to have a little bit of fragmentation and it's very very normal to see an average looking embryo over a textbook perfect embryo so most of our pregnancies would be from those average embryos not those perfect embryos um, and I've seen very perfect embryos that haven't created pregnancies so yeah people do and I, I'd be the, exactly the same you know if I was coming through and I was looking at my embryos absolutely I would be wanting to know what the grades were and you know I would be stressing about it too but you you really don't need to because it doesn't tell you whether that's going to actually implant or not. So for to freeze an embryo uh, when it's got to blastocyst stage, does that mean that it there's some some hope in it that it's a good enough grade is of some res, in some respect to result in a pregnancy? As in, you'd only choose to freeze embryos that you think have a chance. 
Yes, so we have specific free, freezing criteria. Okay. Yes, so um, anything that um, is poor quality, is degraded, is too thin, there's too few cells, it's not looking very good, um, then yeah, but that would not fit our freezing criteria and we would not freeze it. And um, gosh, there are so many questions. I mean, what would I, going back to the picture of, for my twins, for example, one of them looked much more developed than the other on the card. Mm-hmm. Really strange. Yeah. I wonder who was who. Um, yes. <laughs> and they would have been different grades. So it, it's just, it, as you said, it's such a science, isn't it? And it's a lot yes. of it is probably down to luck and the genetics and the lining and all of the, all the things above. Um, and uh, in terms of when they're frozen, um, there's also, this is the other thing that I found very confusing. We know that day five is the optimum day to freeze, or um, as you said earlier, but you hear of embryos sometimes being frozen at day six, don't you? Which in my mind would, I think, well, that's better because it's a day, a day that you know more about it. But is that not the case? No, no. So we always would prefer a day five over a day six because it's made blastocyst on day five, whereas we would only freeze on day six if it's made a nice blastocyst on day six, but it's ten, those are the ones that tend to be a little bit slower. Mm-hmm. However, we do freeze great day sixes for a reason. Um, I did have someone message me a little while ago and she said, oh, I've, I've got one embryo, but it's a day six and somebody told me not to bother with it. Um, is that true? And I said, well, you need to discuss that with your doctor, but they wouldn't have frozen it. If there was no reason to freeze it, they wouldn't have frozen it. So we definitely freeze day sixes for a reason. Now, statistically, day fives have a better chance, but there are still lots of pregnancies from day sixes, and that's why we continue to freeze them. That's interesting. Thank you for explaining that. And the other thing I've always wanted to know personally from my experience is how much of the decision on on the embryos and the day of transfer is down to the embryologist and how much is down to the specialist? Like how involved does the specialist get at this stage? Oh, so some some specialists, they will tell us. So they will come in and um, they'll check all the results on day two and they'll want to know, you know, how they're developing and they'll tell us whether they want to do a day three or a day five um, and other doctors leave it up to us. So we'll make that just how they're going, um, which is generally if we've got quite a few that are going well, we'll go to day five. And if we've only got a couple to choose from that are doing well and doing the right thing, we'll go to day three. So it kind of depends on the clinic as to how involved the specialist is in the decisions. Yeah, definitely. So I think most clinics will be different. I think, and from what I understand, a lot of clinics are going to day five only. Um, so yeah, every, every clinic's going to be different in how they do that. And every specialist will have their own way of how they want to deal with their patients. Yeah. That's really interesting to know. And then the, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about today was frozen embryo cycles over fresh. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, 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 yes. Um, so some people will have to have frozen. So if they're at risk of OHSS, so ovarian hyperstimulation, um, if their progesterone has already gone up, if they at egg collection had a lot of follicles, um, or if their endometrial development hasn't been good, then the doctor will tell them they have to have a frozen transfer and they don't really get a choice in that. And then for other people, if their endometrium is good and they haven't collected a lot of eggs, then a fresh transfer is fine. So that's up to the doctor to decide what they're going to do there. Um, statistically, there's not much of a difference and the stats, you know, each clinic stats, they're going to change from month to month anyway. And um, as far as I'm aware, fresh frozen doesn't really matter. You need to do what your doctor thinks is best for you. And um, 
yeah, I, I've seen most a lot of pregnancies from both. So that's completely up to the individual, the patient's individual circumstances as to what they should have done. But if it was me and I was going through testing, whether they told me I had to have a fresh transfer or whether they told me I had I would have to have a frozen, I would just do whatever they tell me to. I wouldn't be too concerned. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and when, as an embryologist, when a result comes in from a cycle... Are you informed by the doctor as to whether it was a success or not? As in, do you follow the patient's journey like the doctor does? Oh, for the pregnancy test, you mean? Yes. So do you yeah, so in our biochemistry lab, um, so in our, we have a, where I am, we have a biochemistry lab in our clinic. So when the those results written up on a board so every time you enter the office you will see the you'll see the names written up on the board which is really exciting um so yeah we're always hanging out in the afternoon for those names to get written up so yeah we are always checking we like to um or we'll log into the computer and check when we know that certain patients are coming in for the test results so yeah we do form close relationships with our with our patients because we do see them so much they're coming in for bloods all the time or they're talking to us for their embryology updates to follow and see how they're going and we get really excited when they get good results amazing amazing it's yeah it's such a gift isn't it just to just to finish um tell tell us a bit more about i like my eggs fossilized and your instagram page Oh, yes. Yeah. So I've just created this page to give little bits of information to make it a more positive experience for patients because I do know that going through fertility, any fertility struggles is, you know, very, very stressful. So I've just created it to be a positive space with, to, um, you know, little bits of education and scientific facts to help people understand it all. And um, as the page grows, I'm going to be doing, you know, more and more scientific, scientific education posts. And I love interacting with people in the community and asking questions and getting their tips that I can share for other people. And um, I just want to do what I can to make it a less stressful journey for people going through. And yeah, I just... Um, I love people send me messages saying that um, it's really certain bits of information they've found really helpful. And I just um, want to do that as much as I can to make it as, as positive of an experience as I can. A hundred percent. That sounds amazing. Well, thank you so much for all of your insight today. It's been a pleasure having you on as a guest and I'll include the links for people to find your page um, in, in the write up. So thanks so much, Kristen. Thank you so much for having me.